Welcome to Grace on the Go. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go. This episode is a sermon from Sunday, January 27th, 2019, called The Greatest of These, given by Pastor Jonathan Dinger. The scripture passage highlighted for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always preserves. Love never fails. So in this season, let me, forgive me, I'm going to do a little bit of a churchy, churchy thing here because we, in our church, we have, um, we have assigned readings every week. It's one way to do, do what we do. So you have a different thing to preach on each week. You just don't kind of go looking for stuff but something is assigned. And in this season, which we call Epiphany, Epiphany started really with the wise men, the wise men's visit, and then it goes up to Lent. And it's about eight weeks long. And in those weeks, all of the readings that are chosen are ones that reveal Christ essentially as the light of the world. So it starts with him as the Magi, right? The Magi come as the Savior. And then Jesus is taken in for for his naming and circumcision and Simeon and Anna. Oh, look, it's the Messiah. And, uh, and then uh, there's um, Jesus' baptism, right? And the voice from heaven says, this is who this is. And on and on it goes. There's a wedding in Cana. He does his first miracle. And his disciples believed him, put their faith in him. And then, there's, um, um, and then the, it ends with the transfiguration, right? So Jesus goes up on a mountain, right? Here he is. And so the, all of those weeks are about revealing Jesus. Today, the assigned reading was on, in 1 Corinthians 12, and this one from Luke, about the body of Christ, and my eyes drifted to chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians 13, and it struck me to say this, what else could more clearly reveal Jesus Christ than the unconditional love of God? So I want to talk to you about this because this word is used, abused, misunderstood, misrepresented, constantly. And so it's probably not the first time you've ever heard something like this or about it, but it's important for us to remember and to be reminded of this. What is in fact the nature of love? Let me give you let me give you a little background on this. So we're in 1 Corinthians. In the history of the church, the first century of the church, one of the churches was particularly a problem child, and that was this church, the church in Corinth. It was in Greece. It's the church in Corinth. And when you read through 1 Corinthians, what you find is an entire litany of Paul writing a letter saying, okay, you're screwed up here, you're screwed up here, you're screwed up here, you're screwed up here, you're screwed up here. You are messing these, these you're, you're doing things wrong. Here are the topics in the chapters leading up to this. Here's all the topics. First of all, they were quarreling with one another. They were having arguments all the time. Then they had divisions. One group said, well, I follow Peter. Another one said, I follow Paul. And another one said, well, I follow Jesus. He said, you got a problem. That's a problem. And then they started, then they had arguments about ministry. 
who's supposed to be the pastor or not be the pastor? Who's, who's doing that? And then they had ones about sexual morality, right? Who can sleep with who and what happens? And, and then they had one member taking other members to court, lawsuits. Paul goes, yeah, it's goofed. That's, that's just wrong. It's just a mess. And then he, had, then he, he talks to him about uh, Christian marriage, what Christian marriage should look like. And then he talks about what being single as a Christian should look like because they're goofed up on that in those areas. He talks to them about the secular culture that they're part of, that they're kind of giving in to the culture and they got to be distinct. He talks to them about authority, right? Who's in charge? He talks about what it means to have freedom as a Christian. Can you just do anything that pops into your head? Is that what that means? To have freedom as a Christian? He talks about the clothes you wear and the jewelry that you wear, how, whether you should cut your hair or let it grow long or whatever. He talks about appearance. He talks about, because they were arguing about that. He talks about the Lord's Supper. That's a big one. Where they're, not, they're playing fast and loose and people are getting sick and things aren't going well. Um, he talks about spiritual gifts and people speaking in tongues. That people are now mad at each other and arguing with one another. All of those topics. And then he gets to this and he says, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And here's the interesting thing. In our culture today, to be honest, when you run up to a problem, what you essentially are looking for is an answer. I don't know, maybe that's a guy thing. But I think it's fairly human. I think it's pretty human. In every one of these things, okay, you're quarreling, how do we fix that? What's the answer to that? And what's the other one? You got problems with authority, or marriage, or sexual morality, or uh, how we practice the Lord's Supper? Here's the answer. And this is always a trick for me as the pastor, because this is bad. Like, I teach confirmation, Ryan and I teach confirmation, and Ryan, this is good, he's back there in children's church. Ryan is a superior teacher to me because all these kids know they can wait me out. Like I'll ask a question and they know they can just sit there because I will eventually answer it. I will just answer it. So I love the kids who won't do that and just start talking. And then I love that and the engagement goes, but they've learned that they can wait me out. And I'm, therefore I'm not a really a, a very good teacher. I'm a pretty good lecturer, not a really good teacher. And so he, um, so Ryan does a great job because he can wait him out. And then he engenders that conversation and discussion. It's good. It's healthy. But when we've got an issue, we're usually looking for an answer. What's the answer to these things? And Paul has some. He has counsel. He has guidance. He has some answers. And some of these are very thorny problems indeed. They are convoluted messes, a bunch of them. And in fact, he does this chapter on love because after this, he's got to talk about the resurrection. They're arguing about that, whether Jesus really rose from the dead. So he takes an interlude here to say, the answer to your questions is going to be love. And that sounds so cheesy, doesn't it? It just sounds trite. It sounds like a cliche. We'll just love one another, you know. We'll all stand around, hold hands, and sing Kumbaya, you know. And, you know, it doesn't resonate with us. It doesn't resonate. But that's not what Paul's, it's not what Paul's talking about. He says, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. Because I think we're often out, uh, we're out hunting for answers. We want answers. And what Paul is saying is, if we don't get this one right, we don't get any of them right. So here's number one. If you're taking uh, notes in your pages, it's this. The answers are nothing without love. 
I hope you see that in the text, and I printed the text above your outline for you. You'll see that in here, because we'll work through it. How can love be the answer? And and that's that's a real question. If you're defining love as that emotion that you get when you're around that certain someone. Right? That, those butterflies in your tummy when you anticipate being with, the, with that lo- the love of your life. And love is not those things. As you read this chapter, nowhere does Paul talk about love in terms of passion or emotion or feeling. In every one of these cases, Paul talks about love as a choice. Love is a choice. If you jot notes, that's worth writing down. Love is a choice. It's not that funky feeling you get in the pit of your stomach or make you lightheaded when you see that beautiful someone. Love is a choice. When you stand up at the altar and commit your love to one another in your marriage, that's what you're saying. Today, I choose you. And I will continue to choose you. I'm hoping you're going to say you choose me back. But I choose you. And we're broken and hurting, and sometimes it doesn't work out as we wish. I, we get that. There's no, no greater sin than another or anything like that, but it's hard. It's work. It's a tremendous challenge. But love is a choice. Therefore, answers are nothing without love. This is the point that Paul is saying. If I speak in the tongues of men or in angels, if I have heavenly language where I can actually communicate with God, but I have, don't have love, I got nothing. Now, let me talk to you about this for a minute because what I want to then do is say, I find this interesting. As Paul goes through this, and there are smarter heads than me and better, better theologians than me, I just hope this blesses you a little bit because I want to tell you the blessing of love. Why this is so significant. When what Paul is saying, when this gets brought into the equation and becomes that which binds it all together and creates unity, Things change. That's what he's talking about. I'm going to, okay, so now I'm going to show you a Lord of the Rings clip. (sighs) I debated with Jim for two days about whether I should do it. Jim said to show the whole movie, but (laughs) he's not here to argue with me. He will be, though, shortly. So anyway, um, no, um, it's so funny. We're both such geeks about this movie, but let me set the stage if you're not super familiar with it and if you are familiar with it it'll resonate with you so this is called the council of elrond there's an evil ring do you know this there's a bad ring that has to get destroyed and this bad ring corrupts everybody and so this lead this group of leaders from all around middle earth different races of people it's elves and, and dwarves and it's men and it's hobbits they all get together and they have to decide what to do it's it's an existential problem of facing the whole world what will they do and it comes to the conclusion that we have to destroy the ring how will that happen the ring was made in the fires of Mount Doom only there can it be unmade it must be taken deep into Mordor and cast back into the fiery chasm from whence it came one of you must do this. One does not simply walk into Mordor. Its black gates are guarded by more than just orcs. 
There is evil there that does not sleep. And the great eye is ever watchful. It is a barren wasteland, riddled with fire and ash and dust. The very air you breathe is a poisonous fume. Not with 10,000 men could you do this. It is folly. Have you heard nothing Lord Elrond has said? The ring must be destroyed. And I suppose you think you're the one to do it. And if we fail, what then? What happens when Sauron takes back what is his? I will be dead before I see the ring in the hands of an elf. No one trust an elf. I will take the ring to Mordor. No. I do not know the way. I will help you bear this burden, Frodo Baggins, as long as it is yours to bear. If by my life or death, And you have my bow. And my axe. So, anyway, uh, forgive me. Um, I won't show another one for at least a week. Um, no, this is what I love about that. Those are the most powerful and influential people of all the races of that world gathered together to try to decide what to do. And all they can do is shout at each other. Does this sound familiar, by the way? It sounds far too familiar that what we have in our age now is noise. We have noise. And what does it take? It takes the smallest man in the room who has nothing to gain and everything to lose. And, and therefore, that's the definition of love. And he chooses, I will do this thing. And isn't it one of the great lines in the whole movie? I will do it but I don't know the way. And so together, so the, then, and the title of the first book, the first movie, is The Fellowship of the Ring. And boy, have we gotten the definition of that word, fellowship, wrong. We now think fellowship means a potluck. That's how we define fellowship. You know, hanging out. That's the, that's the thinnest example of what fellowship is. Instead, fellowship is mutual love. Fellowship is mutual sacrificial love. And what happens if you know this story, what I love what happens next is Frodo's buddy Sam, who's been hiding in the bushes, jumps up and he goes, you ain't leaving without me. And he does that solely out of love for Frodo. And then when they go, these that were arguing and fighting and 
fighting for their own position and influence all along. As they go along, they would lay down their lives for one another. One of them does. Lays down his life for another. And they express tremendous uh, devotion to one another. And they are willing to sacrifice completely. I love this illustration. It's just an illustration of what Paul is saying when Paul says this. I'll show you a more excellent way. Even if I speak in the tongues of angels, but I don't have love, I'm only what? I am only a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. So whether I am a president or a senator or a Supreme Court justice or a mayor or a captain of industry or a celebrity or a professional athlete, whatever I am, if I have not love, I can have influence and power, I can have the ability to speak to millions, and if I don't have love, it's just noise. I really, I, I've said this to you more than once, I don't have a political agenda here, but if I'm mad about something in our government, I am so tired of everyone just yelling and nobody listening to one another because there are people that get hurt by your jealousy and your anger and your unwillingness to speak. People are hurt. And I'm not, I, whether it's salaries or this, that. People are hurt when we don't work together. And it is the most selfish thing I've ever seen. I, it is just so selfish. And so I am, I, when Paul talks about this, you can have all this influence, all this power. It means nothing. It's just noise if there is not love. The second one, the second, the third, and the fourth bullets in here, I'll give them to you quickly. He go, talks about moving from knowledge to wisdom, wealth to generosity, and from me to we. Those go together. So this is not simply about you know, we argue and then now we go to music. Noise goes to music. There's a harmony. There's a song that we tell together, uh, that we sing together. But the next three are those. Knowledge to wisdom, wealth to generosity, me to we. Here's the difference. Like last night, trivia night. Trivia night, right? It's just knowledge. And it's dumb knowledge. Right? And so if you win, like if you could win at trivia, I'm the smartest guy in the room. Not really, but who cares anyway? Right? I mean, who cares? What Paul, look at what Paul says. If, if I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith, even a faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. The answers are nothing without love. So here's this one. Knowledge is all about the acquisition of stuff. I want to get more so I can be the smartest guy in the room. Wisdom, on the other hand, is different than that. Simply the acquisition of knowledge is, I kid you not, worthless. The only thing you do with the acquisition of knowledge is win trivia night. And it's called trivia for a reason. Because it does not matter. But wisdom, wisdom does this. And this is how wisdom is described in the scriptures. Sophia in the Old Testament. Wisdom is not, it's, it's taking the knowledge you have and then dispensing it and sharing it with others. And it's not simply wisdom from on high, but it's wisdom that says this. Let me share with you something I've learned and let me prove to you that I'm willing to stand by what I say by walking with you. That's love. That's what this is talking about. So simply dispensing your knowledge from on high actually creates more harm than good in many, many cases. But to say, 
Let me share with you what I've learned and then let me walk with you, if you'll have me. That's what Paul's talking about here. The third change that love does is from me to we, and this is a fairly easy thing. Look at what verse 5 says. It does not, dis well, look at 4. Love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, does not boast, is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. That last one is a tricky one for me. I've, so years ago, and I'm, I'll make a little confession to you, maybe it's weird that I'm doing it here, but I actually ask for your prayers because I find, and I don't know if any of you can relate to this, if any of you have struggled to forgive, um, to keep no record of wrongs, I mean no record of it. So years ago we tried to acquire that big Ballard building, the big warehouse building, and we were unsuccessful in doing so, and, and we're here. And many, many people have said, isn't it awesome that God had us stay here and we could build this, and yes, great, it's awesome. But I still have not forgiven the people that, that, that rooked us out of it. I've not forgiven it. That's the problem. Now, it hasn't led me into, you know, doing illegal things and suing people or doing things like that. We've moved on and we're doing wonderful things. God's doing things here. But man, that nags in the back of my head. I don't know if any of you can relate to that, keeping no record of wrongs. How, but as long as I do that, it's just about me. It's just about me. Because everybody else has moved on, except for me. And so when, like, when, I, talk with, when I talk with couples uh, for pre-marriage counseling or even in marriage counseling, Sometimes we'll turn to this passage and I'll say to him, imagine that this is a test of your love. Let's just say this was like a test. This is your evaluation standard of how loving you are and you have to pass this in order to get married. Right? So let's say you have to score, what's a good score in order to get married? 80%? You gotta get 80%. Okay, let's see. How about this? Love is patient. How you doing? <laughs> Love is kind. Pretty good. It does not envy. Not as good. It does not boast. Mm, not so good. It is not proud. It's getting worse. It does not dishonor others. Okay, a little step up maybe. It's not self-seeking. Ooh, a couple steps down. It's not easily angered. Depends on the day keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't delight in evil. I don't delight in evil, but I don't know that I rejoice in the truth. Right? That's this one. Does this dress make me look fat? That's that one. Do you delight in the truth? Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Those always words are problematic. And then the last one, love never fails. Okay, how you doing? Can you still get married? You get what I'm saying? And so it's, it's, it's horrifying. And that last one is really my last bullet point from fear to trust. Because the last three words, love never fails, that's, that's a fear statement. That's, that's trying to address fear. Because f isn't that the fear? I fear of failing. 
I'm afraid of failing as a husband, as a dad, as a pastor, as whatever. I'm, I'm afraid of failing. Not all the time. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to paint some horrible, pitiful picture. But too often, I, those fears come up. Love never fails. Love never fails. So am I loving? Love never fails. And what it is, it's moving from fear to trust. What love does, it changes fear to trust. A fear of failure to a confidence that we've already won. Let me say this. When I got married, I married up. I, I married up. And my dear wife, I tell you, I could have very easily, for the first five years of my marriage, wondered when she was going to leave me when she discovered what a loser I was. I'm not kidding. Uh, you don't know me in my 20s. And so I was so thankful that she stayed, but I was never afraid of her leaving, truly, not truly. Because you know what? She said, I do, and I got her. She said, I do, and she was committed. And so even in my failures, I knew her character, and I knew she would stay. God does the same thing to you. Love never fails, because Jesus Christ said, I do to you. He said, I do. You've got him. He's yours. And he's got hold of you. Now, lest I finish here, I'm going to do one more thing. Because what really makes this work, because so far, if you took notes on all this stuff, to be honest, all that I've done is given you a bunch of things that you should be doing. That's a burden if I leave it there. I think all of us want to live in that kind of love. To move from noise to music, and to move from me to we, and move from fear to trust, all of those things. I think we all want to, we long to. But as we strive to do it, we fall and stumble. And so when will I ever do this right, Lord? When will I ever do it right? Let me tell you when it's done right. And this is, the, this is what I want to do. Take out your paper, the, your, your outline. And we're going to read this passage, because what makes this gospel is what we're going to do now. And what you're going to do, we're going to read from chapter 13, from chapter 13, verse 1. And I want you to read it with me. And wherever it says the word love, you're going to say the word Jesus. And see if that changes it for you. From being a burden of the law to being something gracious which Christ has done for you. Let's say it together. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have Jesus... I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have Jesus, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and offer my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have Jesus, I gain nothing. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He does not dishonor others. He is not easily angered. And he keeps snowing. Jesus does not delight in but rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. Gracious Lord, change us by your love. Lord, we can come up with answers. We can get the theology right. We can even get the counseling and the therapy right. But if we don't have you, we don't have anything. 
Because without you, Lord, we don't know how to love. Uh, not rightly. And so, Lord, fix our eyes on you, on your tenderness, on your commitment, that you loved us before we were lovable and loved us even, even long after. Lord, we thank you for continuing to pour out your grace to us. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to form and shape us, that we might be reflections of that love which you have shown to us first. Lord, we pray that we might honor you in all we say and do. We pray in your name. Amen. Hey everyone, just a few announcements to stick on your calendars. The first one is this Saturday we have State of the Church on February 2nd from 8 a.m. and we are typically done by noon and it is a great opportunity to see all of the work that God has done through our church over the past year. Also, stick on your calendars, on March 9th we have the annual spring auction for Grace Lutheran School. The theme is Treasure Island, so you know, dress piety, and it will be a lot of fun, and we are going to work to support our school. If you have any questions about this podcast, you can email our podcast at podcast at gracepocatello.org.